ready? to be a light to the nations, and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech olam, borei pri hagafin, amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. And now the blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech olam. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. Now, husbands, if you will bless your wives. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful wife that you've given me. And Father, we thank you and we pour out a blessing upon all the wives on this Sabbath day. I pray that you bless her, strengthen her, and encourage her as she rises in the night to see about the ways of the household. And I pray that you strengthen her as she teaches and educates our children. Father, I pray that you pour out your very best blessing upon her and that you would encourage her in everything that she does. Let her know how worthy of praise and honor that she is. And Father, I confess with all of my heart that I love her and I thank you, Lord, for her. We also bless all of the widows and orphans, those without a father or a husband at this time as well. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. All right, now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. 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 Let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shalom. Please join us for the Baruch the call to worship. Baruch et Aronai Hamvorach. Baruch Aronai Hamvorach Leolam Vaed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Mi chamocha ba'elim Adonai Mi chamocha nedar ba'kodesh Nora te'ilot o'osef 
Blessing of Messiah. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu et derech ha-Yeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Vishamru. Vishamru v'nei Yisrael et hashabat, la'asot et hashabat la'doratam barit olam, b'nei uvayan b'nei Yisrael oti le'olam, Kishishet yamin asa aronai et hashmayim va et haralets uvayom hashvi'i shvat vayinefash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. If you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto, Le'olam va'ed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elochecha. Altogether, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Eternity, 
stream behind the veil Lord over heaven and earth gotta be his fire Come with your wisdom and power Clothed in your honor and strength Lord hear the cry of our hearts Come conquering King And every eye will see your glory fill the sky Adonai, Adonai And every knee will bow to you, Lord Most high Adonai, Adonai You alone are God Every tongue will cry Jerusalem waits and praise is lifted on high hear the beautiful gates long to see you arise when all Zion sings Maruka
You are Lord over all the earth. Shalom, everyone, and welcome to our broadcast here at Erev Shabbat. Uh, this week, our Torah portion is Vayakel. It comes to us from uh, Exodus chapter 35. We are in that transition point where now from here on out in the book of Exodus, we're going to hear very explicit details about the whole plan to put together the tabernacle and the whole process of assembling, accounting for all of the materials, and how it was all completed. And Moses is being very exacting about the whole layout of the tabernacle and all of its materials and how it's all being put together. And so this portion begins uh, by specifically uh, addressing um, the... uh, how the people came with willing hearts uh, to assemble all the materials, and that's where it originated from. And then he goes, starts going into the details of how all of those gifts and all of those things, they were the ones that underwrote, if you will, the creation of the tabernacle. And then he begins to uh, give a very detailed uh, uh, a description of how the tabernacle was to go together. In fact, uh, I use the term uh, when I usually teach this potion is that this is the portion I call the exploded isometric. Um, in engineering uh, work, engineering drawings, when a piece of equipment is being designed and you looking at the engineering drawings, you see these internal parts and then all the parts are separated and they're lifted out and, and so forth. And if you ever see a, a, a manual on an on a engine or something, you'll sometimes see those kinds of diagrams. They're, it's called an exploded isometric uh, where they give you the imagery of all the individual parts kind of hanging in the air so you see how they all fit together. Well, this tour portion kind of does the same thing. It ex- explains all the parts that are going to be uh, put into the tabernacle and uh, basically how they're going to fit together and come together. So without going into the detail of, and by the way, it's highly detailed as to what it's doing, um, you'd be asking the question, now what what would be the Haftor portion that would go with that uh, kind of description from the Torah? And the answer is the Haftor comes to us from 1 Kings chapter 7. 1 Kings chapter 7 is talking about Solomon building the temple of all of the materials that King David had assembled and brought together. If you remember the story, God did not permit King David to build the temple in Jerusalem. 
He allowed him to collect and bring all the materials. He had the heart to want to do that, just like the children of Israel had willing hearts to bring the materials together. But it was the son of David, it was Solomon, who actually had the responsibilities of assembling those parts and building them uh, all together to form the temple in Jerusalem. And 1 Kings 7 is a very detailed account, just like the Torah portion, a very detailed account about a couple of things that went into Solomon's temple. And oh, by the way, the things that were assembled weren't part of the original tabernacle. So there were different, some additional parts that King Solomon did in the temple in Jerusalem that the, um, the tabernacle in the wilderness never had. Follow along with me. I'm going to read to you in 1 Kings 7. I'm sure you'll be familiar with what I'm talking about as we read along. 1 Kings chapter 7. Now Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished all his house, and he built the house uh, uh, of the forest in Lebanon, and its length was 100 cubits and 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits, and four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams and in the pillars. And it was paneled with cedar above the side chambers in which there were 45 pillars and 15 in each row. The first thing that Solomon did before he built the house of the Lord, the temple, is he went and he created houses for himself. He got all of that out of the way. He got all of his business out of the way so that he could then focus 100% on working on the temple. And there was nothing rushing him or pushing him to do it. He was dedicated 100% to building the temple in Jerusalem. It wasn't one of those deals, well, I need to hurry up and get done with this because I want to go build that. The Bible explicitly says that he got all his personal business out of the way. He got his houses built, got them done. There's nothing for him to build further. He is now 100% committed to the building of the temple. And it goes on to <clears throat> tell us specifically, um, <clears throat> let me move to chapter 9. <clears throat> and all of these were of costly stones and stones cut according to the measure saved and sawed inside and outside, even from the foundation of the coping to the outside of the great court. And the foundation was of costly stones, even larger stones, stones of 10 cubits and stones of 8 cubits. By the way, those are massive stones uh, with those dimensions. And above were costly stones, stone cut according to the measure in the cedar. So the great court all around had three rows of cut stones and rows of cedar beams, even the inner court of the house of the Lord and the porch of the house. He's talking about the actual structure of the temple uh, that we know. Verse 13, now King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. Let me explain who this gentleman is. This Hiram from Tyre, we believe, was, was one of the sons of Israel. He was born to, in the tribe of Naphtali. And Naphtali was one of the northern regions of where they lived. And he had specifically moved to a major city, uh, Phoenician coast, there on the Mediterranean, where there was a lot of commerce and a lot of activity. 
a major center, and he was set up there, and he had become known for being a skilled craftsman at molding brass and making things very ornamental <clears throat> and very artistically um, out of brass and bronze. So Solomon calls for him to come to Jerusalem because he specifically wants him to make something that's going to be for the temple. Now, in the ancient story, we know the story that Bezalel, the son of Hur, he was the man that was commissioned to make the furnishings inside the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread, the menorah, because he was a craftsman at molding with gold. Now, here's this fellow, Hiram from Tyre. He's an expert at molding with brass and bronze, and Solomon calls for him by name uh, to come to create certain things that's going to be for the temple. The things he's going to create are going to be two pillars, metal brass pillars, that are going to stand either side of the door on the porch of the temple going before you go through into the, into the temple proper. You have to go between these two pillars to go in. He also commissioned him to build in a gigantic laver for the washing of the priests. And this was a very large metal bowl. Uh, it was so big they called it the sea. And it was full of water. And underneath, supporting it and holding it up, he fashioned oxen. Uh, actually, there were 12 of them, three facing one direction, three this way, three this way, three this way. And the bowl was sitting on top of these 12 oxen. And he fashioned that as be the labor for the priest to be able to wash their hands and feet when they render the service uh, in the temple. The 12 oxen obviously was one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. But then he had these two pillars made, and I want you to listen to the instruction of what he says about these, uh, and then we're going to talk about why in the world did Solomon have two pillars made and added to the front porch of the temple. Um, let me get down to verse 15. And he fashioned the two pillars of bronze. Eighteen cubits was the height of one pillar and a line of 12 cubits measured the circumference of, of them both. This thing was 30 feet in the air. And it was so big, you couldn't put your hands around it. This was a giant pillar, 30 feet in the air. Uh, it didn't support anything. It was on the porch. But at the top, he made a special cap uh, for it. Uh, and you've seen uh, columns before where there's a little ornamental thing on the top of the column. Well, this had a very ornamental cap to the top of it, and there's even instruction given with regard to how that was done. It was very artistic. There were lilies, you know, and, and, and plants and pomegranates being illustrated uh, in it uh, on this cap. So you, when you would go to the temple, you would look, and you'd see the doorway of the temple, you'd see the um, uh, altar, you'd see this incredible bronze laver uh, there, and you would look up, and here's these two giant pillars. Now, they didn't reach all the way to the top 
of the temple itself. That was still another, oh, 10 feet or so above. The, the top of the temple was up like 40 feet. These pillars were up like 30 feet. And at the top of the temple, there was gold all around the edges at the top. So it would look like a crown. But then you had these two pillars that came up and had this ornamental stuff on top of them. And that would be your first impression. And if you were going to go into the temple and do anything or do any business, you had to go between these two pillars uh, for it. And then Solomon named the pillars. The one on the right, the scripture tells us, was named Yaquin, spelled J-A-C-H-I-N, Yaquin. And then the one on the left was called Boaz. Now, you probably have heard the name Boaz uh, other places in the Bible. And some, then it gets interesting because the Bible here, to some extent, doesn't really explain why did Moses do that? I mean, what's the significance of this? And it's pretty much been left to um, the rest of us throughout the ages to try to understand what was the, what was the purpose of this? Why, why was this done? And let me just tell you, if you go to do a study on this, to try to understand what, what do these things mean, uh, let me just give you a roadmap through the study you're going to face. Number one uh, is, is the names of the pillars based on certain people that lived, because those are actual proper names that could be used. And we've all heard of Boaz before. Uh, and there were some Yaquims, but not quite as famous as Boaz. And then you have to rule out, are those the proper names that are being used? Or is there some sort of esoteric or mysterious or deeper meaning to those names for the pillars. The consensus of all scholars pretty much is those are not proper names. There is an esoteric, there is a mysterious understanding as to what Solomon was trying to do. So the first thing that you're faced with in trying to answer this question, what is the meaning of these things, is to address the fact that numerology-wise, it's the number two. And oh, by the way, in the Bible, of all of the different numbers that have themes throughout the Bible, probably the most dominant one is the number seven, but certainly right up there, very close to it, is the number two. The number two is represented to us in a whole host of ways, beginning even with the creation to the very definition of who we are, of, er of all kinds of things. One of the first great definitions of the number two has to do with the sun and the moon. The sun rules the day, the moon rules the night. Day and night, too. That is how the creation for us works, based on the number of two. The fact is that you and I, as human beings, we have two sides to us. We have two ears, two eyes, two arms, two feet. And the combination of those, those things of two provide balance, and so all of the things we see in the world 
that deal with balance have to do with two. If you take a uh, measurement scale, well, you're going to have two weights to determine the balance of the thing. The number two is just all over the creation and all over the Bible, by the way, as to explaining balance and how things should be done. So there's, there's agreement with regard to that, that certainly the fact that there's two pillars as opposed to, say, seven pillars or five pillars or whatever, the two pillars carry tremendous weight and consistency with what we understand uh, about the general world. Now, if you start breaking this down uh, and you get this idea that there's this esoteric thing to it, this has been <laughs> the source of um, mystery, shall we say, for a whole lot of other folks that are running around the world. They, they jump on this and they want to use it claiming they have the understanding for it. And not the least of them is an organization called Freemasonry. And Freemasonry believes that there is a secret meaning in those two pillars. And the Masons have literally built their entire organization based on this mystery of these two pillars. The, um, they have done a, a gamatria-type thing down on these names uh, of it, and it's not the normal Hebrew gamatria. It's a different one. It's a Chaldean one. And they came up with the number 33 for the two pillars. Have you ever heard of a 33rd-degree mason? That is where all that stuff comes from. It comes from these, they're claiming they have these secret understandings about these two pillars. Now, interestingly enough, um, if you're a Mason, you, you, you make a pledge when you join the Masons that you will not reveal the secrets of Masonry. Well, <clears throat> this big secret <clears throat> that they claimed that they knew about the two pillars, supposedly according to Freemasonry documents, they lost the secret meaning somewhere in the 1800s, and nobody knows. Now, that let's just set all that aside. I don't believe that Solomon set up the two pillars so he could be the foundation of forming the Freemasonry. Um, and part of Freemasonry is about the, the greatest technical work in the ancient times was the ability to build stones and build stone buildings. Well, the temple was this incredibly stone building. And so the Masons tie together the Solomon's temple and the two pillars. And, and they, they, they use that because that was their craft. They were stone Masons. They used that craft and they formed this um, organization based on those, that model and based on those themes. So again, let's set all that aside. Let's go back to what do we see in scripture? that supports why in the world did Solomon do that? First of all, Solomon isn't really responsible for doing it all the way. King David has testified in these books and hence instructed his son Solomon that the plan for the temple in Jerusalem was given to him by God. 
And he literally laid out the drawings and built the models for King Solomon to follow. And so the two-pillar idea and this great laver that was done that was different from the tabernacle, that is sourced from King David and his testimony that God helped him to build the plan for the temple so it originates from King David. Now, Solomon's the guy that simply created it and built it, and he got the right craftsman to come uh, to do it uh, correctly according to that plan. Uh, The names Yaakim and Boaz have specific meanings. And in fact, the meaning of Yaakim has to do with the hand of God. It has to do with God has established And Boaz, his name, it comes down to the meaning of what is understood to be the works of the king's house. And in it says, in strength. So God has established with strength, and strength there is referring to the working of a strength, the strength of working. So in its simplest term, The two pillars are supposed to mean that God has established or prospered, are you ready for this, the son to do the works of the king's house. That is the Hebraic understanding of it. That's how they do it. Now, in Judaism, they give the honor of the son to King Solomon. He was the son of David. He's the one that built the house. But the remez level, the hint level to the Messiah is who really builds the house of God? It is the Son of God. It is the Messiah who builds the house of God and does the works of the house of God. You can get this theme from the very first word in the Bible. Bereshit, in the beginning, the first letter of the first word in the Bible is the letter bet, which means house. And it's talking about creating a house for God. And Bereshit then goes on to say that it will be the one who sits at the right hand of the Almighty who will be the one who will do that, and he will do that by taking a bride. That's what Bereshit says. So here's these two pillars, which is giving this same kind of testimony, you know, for it. And if you will, let me take you to 1 Kings 7, uh, verse 51. Let me read to you how this theme is expressed in 1 Kings 7. Thus all the work that King Solomon performed in the house of the Lord was finished, and Solomon brought in the things dedicated by his father David, the silver, the gold, and the utensils, and he put them in the treasures of the house, you know, for it. It shows the completion of the works of God. And the, um, uh, there's another corresponding passages in Chronicles, First Chronicles 20, and it deals with these pillars represented the whole purpose of the temple. They represented what God was doing on the world 
with his temple. And this is the reason why the temple and the altar and the priesthood are such a focus of our faith. These are the works of the Son of God to make a way for us. The temple is a place where God can come to us, do business at his altar with every one of us, and we get to come. Now, there's also another very, very powerful spiritual theme that goes with it. And it goes back to this thing about balance. One of the keys to spiritual maturity and walking out the faith correctly and appropriately is to be spiritually balanced. And the Lord says to us that to be spiritually balanced, we must do things in spirit and in truth. If you do things in the spirit without the truth, it's out of balance. You do things about the truth without the spirit, it's out of balance. You must have both spirit and truth. Let me illustrate for you something that God has instituted uh, upon us with regard that illustrates that beautifully. So let's take the, th the concept of truth. Guess which side is truth? The left side of you. The left side of you is the symbol of truth in your life. Uh, when an observant Jew puts on phylacteries and tefillin, he binds his left arm with it. He comes down and wraps it around his covenant finger, and he takes grasp of it in an effort to say that I love the truth. And by the way, the scriptures are placed in that phylactery box right by the heart, that the heart and truth are essential for a spiritual man. However, on the other side is the side of anointing. It's the side that represents the spirit. And when a man is anointed fully by oil, there is some oil on his head, just like the, uh, the phylacteries are. And then suddenly there's oil on his right earlobe, not his left, his right earlobe. Then the oil is on his right thumb. Then the oil is put on his right big toe. And so a man who is balanced, who loves the truth and has been anointed, his left side represents the truth, his right side represents the spirit, and this is how you do business with God. This is how you walk out your spiritual life. Guess what was right in front of the temple doors? That message. That right pillar represents the, uh, how God establishes by the hand of God through his spirit. And he does the works in this world by truths. And so there's spirit and truth. And these two pillars stand right there for you to go through. Everything is done in spirit and in truth. Yeshua came to build the temple. I can assure you those two pillars of the faith are what sustains us and continues to maintain the balance. Now, it was always understood from the Torah that certain concepts would be true, that that's what would be happening. But in the outworking of those things, the further manifestation of God, and God's, by the way, has been in the business 
of continuing to manifest himself to mankind through every one of the patriarchs, through every one of the covenants that he's established to the days that we even have. Now, he's manifesting himself. He's revealing himself. He's making it richer and greater for us um, in the knowledge of him. I believe these two pillars carried an incredible spiritual concept that when we came to do business before God, that that was a reminder right up front as to what it should be. I also want to make the recommendation to you, do not listen to all the other nonsense that has where people have tried to, different groups, certain ways of thinking, have tried to exploit this for their own gain and try to change the meaning into something else. And by the way, they have done it throughout the ages. This is such a powerful symbol that was at um, Solomon's temple that all kinds of people have tried to exploit this esoteric meaning, trying to exploit it for something else, to deceive, to deflect, to move you away from those truths. But the Scripture does give the interpretation of it, and it's completely consistent with the works that we see of the Messiah coming and how he's made the temple even more real for it, and it was foreshadowed that there would be the Son who would be building the temple. It would be the Son who would come from God, who would do the great works of God. And that is what we have in our faith. Do not be deflected by all the other goofy things that you can hear. Um, and by the way, I just took a quick look. Don't, don't do it. I did a quick look on the Internet about what everybody's teaching about this. It was a zoo all over the place. Just stick with the scriptures and we'll be fine and we'll be safe. All right. That's our Torah portion for this Shabbat. This is the Hof Torah portion for it. Let us proceed forward with spirit and truth and have spiritual balance just like the temple illustrates for us. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. If you would, please now turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians. Hold your finger at chapter 9, where our Bret Hadashah portion will begin for this week. And as you're opening the Scripture, let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once again that we can dig into your Word and your instruction. Father, I pray that this time of teaching would be encouraging and edifying to the brethren. As your word comes alive each and every week, Father, we thank you for the uh, time and the opportunity that we live in to where we can have your word and your instruction before us here in our hands, that it is very near to us and that it can speak to us and minister to us. So, Father, I pray for the people that might hear this teaching. I pray that they be encouraged, Lord. Heal them in any uh, areas of healing that they need, and I lift them up on this Sabbath day to, uh, for, uh, Father, for you to pour out a blessing upon them. We love you, bless you, and thank you. In Yeshua's name, amen. So our Torah portion this week is Vayachel and Pekude. It's a double portion, and it closes out the book of Exodus there in the Torah cycle. <coughs> Excuse me. This is one of those portions that ex- is extremely repetitive. There is a great amount of information 
that we have actually already covered, that we've already received. We're, we're going to go over all the details of the building and the construction of the tabernacle that was shown to Moses on Mount Sinai. Our previous portions in Exodus had Moses seeing and receiving the word from the Lord to build these things. Now here at the end of the book of Exodus, the children of Israel actually are literally, physically completing the construction and the service of the tabernacle and the building of these things. And so we can see that there's a great amount of repetition to some of the things that we've already covered. However, there's always a little bit, a couple of little nuggets that I want to pull out that are unique to this Torah portion. And of course, opening up passages in the New Testament, I hope that I can bring out some of those other special nuggets that maybe we didn't have time to get to in previous portions, but then also are very special to this week as we close out this book of Exodus. We're beginning in chapter uh, 9 of 2 Corinthians, talking about the giving of gifts, because that's what happens at the beginning of this portion. Literally, the children of Israel are, are told by Moses, God already said this to Moses, now Moses is gathering the people together, assembling them together to give them the instruction to make that tarumah, that offering, for the construction of the tabernacle. And in their hearts, they had to be stirred in their hearts to give that gift, to have the desire to, to give the gift to the Lord for the construction of the tabernacle. They had to have a certain spirit inside of them. So here we find ourselves in 2 Corinthians 9, in which uh, the Apostle Paul is, is teaching us about giving, about the heart of a person who is to give to the Lord. So let's read this passage. We're going to read the entire chapter, all um, 15 verses of 2 Corinthians 9. And you'll start to see the parallel, of course, to the attitude of those that were to give to the construction of the tabernacle. Now concerning the ministry, ministering uh, to the saints, it is superfluous to me to write to you, for I know your willingness about which I boast to you to the Macedonians, that Archaea was ready a year ago, for your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this request, that as I said to you, you may be ready." lest if some of the Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared. We, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. But this I say... He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work, as it is written." He is dispersed abroad, and He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now may He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. While you are enriched in everything for all liberally, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While, while through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God 
for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and, at, and for your liberal sharing with them and all men and by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. This entire idea of giving a gift <clears throat> is an act that draws people together, that causes people to have a relationship with one another. You can actually think about, like, you might have a friend or an acquaintance that you might have. And that person, you might say, hey, that's my friend. But you might ask yourself, has that person ever given you a gift? Maybe your birthday rolled around, Hanukkah rolled around. Did they ever turn, buy you something, and give you a gift? And, and you might say, well, no, that person had, nah, they've never given me a gift. Have you ever given them a gift? Well, no, we, we, your relationship is not on that level. This is all a part of the covenant building that God does with and is doing in our, in our Torah portion story of building the covenant between God and Israel. The giving of gifts is an aspect of covenant. It's an act of covenant that it builds relationships. So that as a precursor to the whole idea of, well, you know, what is this purpose of, of giving a gift? And not only is it about giving a gift, but it's having the right heart and the right spirit inside of you in the process of giving a gift. You might think that, um, you know, maybe somebody's given you a gift before, but you know what? The gift didn't really have much value to it. And now, we're, of course, as we move into the book of Leviticus, and perhaps this is kind of a primer for the book of Leviticus, in the whole idea of the giving of offerings to God, the sacrifice of what it is, is you are to give of yourself a sacrifice to God, and that that gift needs to have value to it. It needs to have substance to it. And you need to not just do it out of obligation. Oh, well, I, I, I probably should give, this, give, uh, give that person a gift, you know, it's, it's, it's their birthday, and so I feel obligated that I need to give them a gift. Is that the right attitude to have with giving a gift? You might go through the motions, but spiritually, there's nothing being achieved in the giving of that gift. You still begrudgingly are acquainted with this person, but you're not allowing in your heart, in your attitude, in your emotion to boost and to grow the relationship that you have with that person. You're not building it. You might give them a gift, but you're not building the friendship because in your heart, you're not doing it out of the goodness, out of graciousness out of the desire to, 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 to uh, uh, bless somebody. That's the problem is that you can give a gift, but it might mean nothing. And the person, they might sense that. You can give that gift, but then they're like, they're like oh, they, they open your gift. They unwrap it and they say, oh, thank you so much. But then they look over at you, thank you. And you're like, oh yeah, you know, enjoy. And they're like, did that person really... Did they care about the gift? Did they really put it? It's very clear. They don't show any effort to it. And again, it's not just about giving the gift, but it's having the right spirit in your heart in the course of giving the gift. Just like it said, God loves a cheerful giver. Cheerful. Let the emotion be behind it. It's not just about the physical act of taking what you have and giving it to the Lord or giving it to somebody. God sees our hearts. That's the thing about giving a gift to God. You might be able to pull the wool over somebody's eyes and, and give a gift, and you don't really care about them, but they think that you care about them. Now, that's, that, that's almost a whole other problem, whole other issue, uh, is that, you know, that you're kind of stringing somebody along, making them think that you like them, 
when in truth of fact you don't. That's a, that's a whole other, uh, you know, that might borderline on false testimony that you're showing that you care, but you really don't. So, I mean, that, that, that's a whole other thing. You might be able to pull the wool over someone's eyes, uh, you know, uh, uh, another human being. <clears throat> but when it comes to God, he sees your heart and he knows whether that gift truly came from your heart with a desire for you to be in covenant with God. There's plenty of people sitting in pews on Sunday morning or any other congregation, and if they pass the plate or maybe there's an offering box uh, there somewhere in the congregation, and you might feel like, man, it's like kind of this obligation when the plate comes by, you know, I better, everybody better hope and see that I put something in the plate. So you reach into your pocket and you pull out, you know, whatever you got. And maybe it is a lot of money. Maybe the only thing you have in your wallet is, is $100 bills. And so, you know, they got to see something. So you go ahead and take the $100 bill, you put it in there. And so that maybe everybody saw that you did. But does the Lord see your heart? Was your heart really in the idea to give that to money to the common storehouse or to the ministry or the congregation that you're donating to? Understanding that it's a gift to the Lord. The Lord sees your heart. I mean, honestly, if that's why you give, you know, you got to sit there and question. It's all like, well, 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 why are are you giving it? That's almost a responsibility for even us in the ministry that if somebody is giving a gift, but they really aren't passionate about the gift of giving it to the Lord, then integrity within ministry needs to teach that person and say, no, you got to fix your relationship with the Lord. It's all like, if you're talking about giving me the money, the, the, the highest level of integrity would say, no, you keep the money until you're right with the Lord and ready to give it. Of course, other people see the $100 bill and just be like, oh, well, we'll just, just go ahead and make the donation or whatever, and, 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 and we'll, we'll know it's to the Lord. No, there's a, there's a level of integrity that those of us that work in ministry, really, if we're being honest with ourselves and doing the work of God graciously and rightly and appropriately, we understand that that gift has to be done from the heart of a person, in the spirit of the person. I want, I want you to donate to this ministry if you're blessed by this ministry, not just because it feels like an obligation. That's the highest level of integrity that I can do walking out and doing the service of ministry. And such is the case in the service of God in the course of the tabernacle or any other aspect or any other way that you can give to the Lord because you love the Lord, because of the covenant relationship that you have with the Lord. It's all about what is in the spirit of the person. If God has supplied your need, that's the, way the, that's the other thing that the passage talked about, is that God has supplied seed to the sower and bread for food, and that He has given you sufficiency in all things, so that you have an abundance to do good work. Out of, the, out of the blessing of the abundance, and because God has met your needs, God has given you that gift, it's then our responsibility being in covenant with God to reciprocate the gift. That's the way it is. Gift, gift giving is a two-way street, as I asked you before. If you have a friend that you've given a gift, but they've never given to you, is that a two-way relationship? Is it, oh, I mean, is that person agreed to this certain level of covenant that's now grown between you, that's, uh, that's grown to the level of giving gifts to one another? Or is it a one-way street and you're trying to, give, to, to, to build the relationship, but they're not responding? Ultimately, that's what God is doing. It's, God has already done the work by meeting our needs. The, the, the indescribable gift that God has given to us in the very end of the very last verse of this passage 
of the, the salvation from sin, the death of, the, of God's firstborn son to be the sacrifice and to be the Savior of the world so that we might have eternal life. And maybe even people that don't, don't believe in Yeshua, we're talking about maybe like the Jewish people, they still have the understanding that it's the breath of God that has breathed life in. God has given us the gift of life. Or is that going to be a one-way street? Is that going to be, is that relationship one-sided that God loves His creation and that we aren't going to give honor and respect to the God who has given us life, the gift of life? You can't describe, you can't quantify what the gift of life is. But we should, with all of our heart, turn and give thanks back to the Lord. This is the nature of those that gave to the offering and the donation to the creation of the tabernacle. They were stirred in their spirit to give to the tabernacle. I always love pointing out back in our Torah portion where it says that it was the women that gave, that also brought gifts as well. And in fact, the, the literal Hebrew says that it was the men with the women who brought the gifts. It was a stirring in the hearts of the women to give before the men. Because this is one of the fundamental nature differences between men and women is that women tend to be more spiritually in tune. Now, when God is wanting a stir of the Spirit, sometimes it's women that respond more quickly to moves of the Spirit. This is also one of the reasons, back to this whole concept of gift giving, it's usually somebody more spiritually in tune that has this idea of, I should give that person a gift. When somebody is hurting and, 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 and grieving, it's, it's somebody who's, who the Spirit is stirred in them to say, I need to give them some flowers to comfort them and to aid them. And so it's, it's a tendency of those that are more spiritually attuned to the Lord and, to, and the feelings and the emotions and the thoughts of another person that would have that stirring in their spirit to do something good for that person. This is, again, it's, this is the spirit of giving and what it is. It's, it stirs up inside of us. The desire to give a gift starts inside from the beginning. It's not about what you have on the outside, but it's like, no, if you have a heart to, to, to do it, then ultimately what ends up being the gift honestly doesn't matter as much. Because if you're cheerful in the process of giving, sometimes even the most smallest, insignificant, and, and, and trinkets that have no value sometimes can have the most meaningful be the most meaningful of gifts to another person. Just the thoughtfulness of it. That's why sometimes giving just a card is sufficient to let somebody know that your heart is to cheer them up and to encourage them. In our Torah portion also, <coughs> we, have the, um, we have the listing again, once again, of the artisans of the tabernacle, the uh, Betzalel, Aholiav, filled with the Spirit of God, to construct and to create the tabernacle. They're first mentioned in last week's Torah portion, but we didn't have time to really talk about them. So I want to mention them here in this Torah portion, where the, the most fascinating thing about these men is that they were, it's, that it's the testimony of the Scripture that they were filled with the Spirit of God. This is a, a honor that is actually only reserved for very few people in all of Scripture. Now, we, of course, know that the prophets were inspired and they were heard God, but there is actually very few times in Scripture where it literally says that a certain person was filled with the Spirit of God. We're talking about God's thoughts, God's emotions, and truly walking out 
the Holy Spirit. And, and you have set themselves aside and are then operating in the Spirit of God. That's actually, it's one of the testimonies of Yeshua. If you go to uh, Luke chapter 1, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, not, not Yeshua. In Luke chapter 1, there is the instruction and the story of the birth of John, John the Baptist, prior to Yeshua. And so here we have, last week I talked about how Yeshua did talk about how he was filled with the Spirit of God when he read from the passage of Isaiah. But here in Luke, we actually have this attribution given to John the Baptist that the angel, speaking to John's mother before he was born, saying that he would be filled with the Spirit. Let me read this story here. And you can start to see that this is still a pattern in an, of, of certain men of Scripture that are filled with the Spirit and then what they're able to do in their life after they've been filled with the Spirit. Let's read Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abiah. His wife was the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were born, they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he was in when he went into the temple of the Lord, and the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the house at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he will also go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and to bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not be able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take, uh, to take away my reproach among people. This is the story and the account of the angel speaking to uh, John's parents in the birth of him. Now, there's, we can immediately draw parallels to perhaps when the Lord appeared in three people to Abraham. 
and spoke to him and said, at the time of life, you will have a son. And of course, Abraham said, we're advanced in years. And she and Sarah was barren. And then she laughed, Sarah laughed when she heard, heard of this. And so there, there's a direct parallel here that what has happened to the fathers will happen to the descendants. And there's, a, there's obvi- an obvious parallel there. But the thing that I want to point out, of course, is this idea that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist, this is the man that was, he was the first to declare Yeshua to be the Lamb of God. He was the first to see Yeshua. And immediately upon seeing Yeshua, he said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He knew instantly. How how can a man do that? How can that declaration take place? And immediately after he did that, suddenly men immediately started to believe him to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And there's some reasons why that we believe that as a priest, as a descendant of the priest, he declared the appropriate sacrifice. And so there's, there's an appropriate um, structure of the, a priest declaring a sacrifice to be appropriate. So there's the proper um, protocol in the course of declaring a, a sacrifice to be right and appropriate. But what he saw, what did John see? If you put yourself in John's head behind his eyes, and what did John see? He must have seen something in Yeshua, a glow, an aura, something something heavenly that would have led him to make such a declaration. Excuse me. And this is what I believe the Holy Spirit can do. He can, when filled with the Holy Spirit... You begin to see things that are divine, that are supernatural, that, that, are, that are beyond your normal sight, but you'll see the way something or see somebody the way God sees them. Because what God can see in all of us is He can see His own divine nature in all of creation. He, there, there has to, there's, a, there's a supernatural spiritual glow that is inside each and every one of us. If our, us in, as a part of creation were created from God, that there is this power beyond the physical of what we can see. And when filled with the Spirit of God, we get to see the way God sees something. I believe John saw the Messiah in a way that that was not like any other man. He saw the heavenly nature of God and the heavenly nature of the Messiah. So how does this tie back to our Torah portion here? Because like I said, the Spirit of God was filled inside these men, the artisans that created these things. What were they building? What were they creating? This Ark of the Covenant, this table of showbread, this menorah. Where did they get the idea and the pattern of how those things should look? Moses, yeah, Moses described them. It was written down and described the size and the width and the shape and all those things. Well, how did Moses see it? He was shown it in a vision on the mountain. He was shown the pattern of heavenly things that was then to be created here on earth. So then put your eyes, in the, so, so put your, now put yourself in the eyes and the head of Bezalel, the artisan of the tabernacle. When he saw the gold and saw the, and was told this is the shape that it was to be, I believe he was given the sight and the, 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 the sight of God to know exactly what it was supposed to look like. Because he too saw that same divine heavenly vision of what was in the temple in heaven that was then to be crafted and created of gold here on earth. And that's what it was to have the Spirit of God inside of them. 
This is, this, this is sort of the thing that, like I said, that this uh, testimony is reserved for only a few people. This is why it's so fascinating when you go to Acts chapter 2, talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. That once the people, had the, the Holy Spirit fell, they began speaking in tongues and, 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 and all these things, and it, the sound came from heaven, a rushing mighty wind. Suddenly, heavenly things happen when the Spirit of God comes and inhabits people. We see things in the spiritual when the Spirit is then filled. That's why John could see the Messiah and know the divine nature of the Messiah himself walking on the earth. He probably saw a glow around him or some sort of some kind of spotlight to know instantly that there was something heavenly that it was looking at. Bezalel, when, when molding the, t- the, the menorah or the table and the ark, that after it sort of came to shape, that there was like a glow to it because he could see the heavenly divine nature of it. And then that's what the people could then see and hear at the day of Pentecost when the Spirit filled them and they could, see, they could sense the heavenly nature of things. It also says in Acts chapter 7, Stephen the martyr, right before they killed him, right before they killed him, in verse 55 of Acts chapter 7, he said after Stephen had given his entire testimony here, he and being filled, of the Holy, filled full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Yeshua standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then that's when they stoned him after they, uh, he, he had given his whole testimony. And there at the very end, the last minute of his life, Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit and could suddenly see this, this heavenly divine vision. This is the pattern throughout Scripture of what it is when somebody is filled with the Spirit of God. They can, have, they can see and they can sense things of the, in the heavenly realm. And in our building of the tabernacle at the end of Exodus, that is what was being constructed, a pattern and a shadow of what was divine created here on earth. Now, in our Torah portion for this week, <clears throat> it's a double portion, Vayakel and Pakude. And the second portion of, of our story, Pakude, means giving an account. And what happens in our story is after all the gifts are, are given to um, the gold, the silver, the bronze, the textiles, the various animal skins that were needed to be given, they then gave an account of what was there. They took account of what was given and how much we needed and what and everything that was being, being built. So what I now want to do is take us to Romans chapter 14, where we have the passage of um, Paul speaking to the Romans, talking about those of us that have to give an account of everything that we do in our own lives. If we go to Romans 14, beginning at verse 7, it says this, For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whenever we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another any more, but rather resolve this, 
not to put a stumbling block or, cause, or, or a cause to fall in our brother's way. This goes to, back to this idea of the gift giving and what everybody brought to the construction of the tabernacle. I may have mis- misspoke previously when I talked about how some people brought some gold and that there was also somebody that maybe desired to give a gift, but then they, they didn't give, give anything. That's actually an inaccurate statement if I've, if I've said that in a previous teaching. Because there is one thing that everybody had to give that gave an account of who they are. And this, of course, was the half shekel. This was a commandment that was given. This actually was the one part of the gifts that were given to the tabernacle that was commanded for everybody to give something. Now, the majority of the things, all the gold, all the bronze, um, all of the other materials that built the tabernacle, that was stirred in the hearts of the people to give that gift. But everybody was commanded to give an account that they were to give a half shekel so that they might be counted. In fact, this is how they counted all the sons and the children of Israel. By Everybody gave a half shekel, you counted up the shekels, then we knew how, much, how many people there were, that there were. <coughs> Excuse me. And those shekels went into the creation of the, the sockets and the base of the tabernacle, almost like the foundation of the holy place was made by those shekels that were given and donated by the people and by the children of Israel so that all of Israel built the foundation of the house of God. There's some spiritual principles, of course, to that statement. And that each one gave that. Now, what we should always do is each person has to give an account. And that's obviously how they were counted in that time, at that time in the Exodus, to know how many people were there a part of, uh, a part of Israel. But like I said, there were those that also gave more. Those that gave the gold, the women that gave their mirrors, and that was all made up from bronze that turned into the bronze laver, and all of the all of the other parts that were given, was anybody of the congregation ever supposed to turn to the other neighbor and say, "Well, you you only gave that half shekel. Weren't you going to give more?" And one thing we we should never, in the course of having the right attitude of giving, is to ever think that giving is a chance for us to boast about how much we can give, while our brother couldn't give as much. And for whatever reason, he couldn't give as much. Now, maybe his heart wasn't in giving very much, and that's obviously something he has to give an account to for himself and take responsibility for. But what if somebody wasn't able to give, but then you, as somebody who was a rich man, then judges somebody who's poor because they didn't give as much as you did? That is not how we should judge one another, and that's what this passage is all about. It's about not judging one another because all live and all die according to the Lord, and all people have to give their own account to the Lord. We must not use this process and the giving of any of these things to be something that we lord over our fellow brother or judge one another by these things. Each person has to give an account for themselves. So the guy that gave one half shekel and not another piece of metal more in the tabernacle, he has to give an account to the Lord for his giving, for whatever reason, whether he was able, that was all he was able to give or that he could have given more and didn't. Either way, he has to give an account to the Lord. Just like the person that brought the handful of gold that was the gold that, that, that made the menorah, that person gives an account as well. But that's not for any one person to then judge and say, that person is great among us. No, we, we don't judge. All people give an account. And that is what 
the building and the gathering of these materials, that's what that half shekel is supposed to mean. That was the part that was commanded of all of us. Some people gave more materials, but when it came to the silver, each person gave that amount that was commanded by God so that every man of Israel was equal, at least in that regard. And that's also how God sees us. God sees His creation that we are all, that, that, that we judge amongst ourselves and think some are greater than others. And only God is the one who can ultimately judge that. But we also, in, in, in the God who loves His people, loves Israel, loves the creation, He sees us and He, um, and, and he, he, he sees that we are all a part of the building of the foundation of His house. Now, the last thing I want to talk about here as we close out the book of Exodus about how Moses went into the tabernacle, arranged all the furniture, made sure everything was there, blessed the people after the creation. And after all of that happened, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So one more time, we're going to go to the book of Revelation to chapter 21, where we're talking about the new Jerusalem here and about how the, 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 the new Jerusalem comes here in this place and the glory of the Lord fills the new Jerusalem. So we're going to c- conclude with this, with this whole idea that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle that was created in the wilderness and that it's the glory of the Lord that will come at the end of the age with the new kingdom and the new Jerusalem. Starting at verse 9 of Revelation 20, it says this, Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came to, came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, and I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in, a, in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of the heavens from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like the, a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and the names and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its wall. And the city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed. Twelve thousand furlongs, its length, breadth, and height are equal. And he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man. That is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third uh, chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardis, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth christophrase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl, and the city and the street and the city was pure gold like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty, the Lamb, are its temple. The city had no need of a sun or a moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. 
There shall be no night there, and there shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the blessing, of course, going into the future, the new Jerusalem, of what the throne of God and the very sanctuary of God will be like. Once again, there are many descriptions of, of precious stones, precious materials, gold that shines bright, and the glory of God and the light shining in it. This, of course, is a, is a vision that is much greater than the tabernacle in the wilderness. Though the tabernacle was made with some of the most beautiful things and precious things, it still was the glory of God that dwelt in that place and was there. And it, this is where the pillar of fire by night, cloud by day, appeared over the tabernacle and knowing that God's glory was there. When all of this was completed, what, what a joyous sight this would have been in all the camp of Israel to see the tabernacle being created. In the same way that this is the vision we'll see at the end of the age when His sanctuary is, comes down from heaven, where the, where the sanctuary that we pattern the tabernacle after comes down from heaven and is the new Jerusalem that comes here as the vision here was given in the book of Revelation. What a great and joyous day that will be and what a conclusion and a wrap-up that will be, of course, to the end of the age and to the beginning of the millennial reign as it was such a glorious and amazing day when truly God had a place to dwell amongst the children of Israel even while they were scattered and, and, and wandering in the wilderness. What a parallel that is, and I pray that, that, is the, um, that, that, that that's the connection by which we can teach about the power of God and what the children of Israel experienced in the wilderness and what we hope as we pray and believe that one day we will see that vision, we will see that happen, and we too will get to experience what it's like to dwell with the glory of God. What a great day that will be. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this time, this opportunity, this instruction. Father, I pray that you would, uh, that you have encouraged us and blessed us, Lord, with all of these stories. Father, may we look at each day new, Father, as you have shown these visions and these revelations. Lord, Father, we know what we have to look forward to. So may we be encouraged, Lord. May we not have any uh, spirits of depression, anxiety, or, 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 or being miserable in the world, in the temporal world that we live in now, knowing that there are greater things beyond. Father, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit so that we can see your divine nature in all things, Lord, that we can see your glory and we can behold your glory, Lord, in everything that you've done and made and, and created here on earth but also all the things you are going to do in the power and the glory. Father, we are in awe and reverence of who you are and your power and your glory. And Father, you desire to dwell with us, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the gift that you have given to us, your presence, your life, your salvation, everything that you have given to us. Father, may it be in our hearts to return that gift back to you as a thanks for the gift that you have given to us. We love you, we bless you, and thank you. We give you all honor, all glory, all praise in this place. It's in your Son Yeshua that we pray. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.
May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. Shalom.